May we pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. So by your spirit, light and light, our way as we read your word. Give us eyes to see all that you want us to see. Give us ears to hear all that you want us to hear. And give us hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. The reading this morning is from Malachi 3, 6 through 12. It's in your pew Bibles on page 1021. And actually today it's on the front of your bulletins. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer of you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Two men bring an offering to the Lord, one of the fruit of the ground, the other the firstborn of his flock. God accepts one and rejects the other. Why? Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The word tells us clearly that the offering Abel brought was the firstborn of his flock. But it doesn't say that Cain brought the first fruits of his crops. It simply says, in the process of time, Cain brought an offering. Cain harvested his crops and over time gathered enough to bring an offering. It was an offering on Cain's terms. God accepted Abel's offering because it was the first of his increase. Cain's offering was rejected because it wasn't the first of his. Giving the first to God requires faith. When a firstborn lamb is born in a flock, it's not possible to know how many more lambs that you might produce. But Abel gave his firstborn lamb in faith, whereas Cain made sure he had enough for himself before giving to God. Many of us treat God the same way as Cain, making sure we have enough money before we see if there's anything left for God. So when most of us hear first and 10 here in West Texas, I think of football, right? It's first down, 10 yards to go. But in the Bible, first and 10 means first fruits and 10%. As we look at the Old Testament, we can see very clearly from the passage that Pam read just a moment ago in Malachi, we were called to give 10%, a full tithe to God. And as we look at the story of Cain and Abel, we can see that God was grateful for Abel's gift because it was the first fruits of his flock. Cain's gift he rejected because it was what was left over. 
Did you know that 25% of our operating budget, uh, the offerings come in the last two months of the year, November and December, 25%. Why is that? Why is it that we always seem to wait to the very last minute to give to God what is, well, what's left over, as the, the video said? You know, I imagine we do this because, well, you know, we want to make sure that at the end of the year we get the uh, checks in or our donations in for our tax purposes uh, when we file in April. It reminds me of the story of the father who was coming home from church and he was grumbling to his family about the worship service and he was complaining about how it just didn't go well at all, how the the music was too loud and the prayers were too long and the sermon was was about giving again and all this church really seems to care about is is getting your money. And and well, the the six-year-old son in the back after hearing his father complain for 10 minutes, who had noticed what his father had put in the offering plate, he said, well, dad, you gotta admit, it was a pretty good service for a quarter. I think God wants us to give more than our just spare change to him, doesn't he? I mean, God has blessed us. As we read in Psalm 24 at the beginning of the service, everything we have is ultimately a gift from God. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as we read in Psalm 24, verse 1. But I thought tithing and first fruits, I thought that was more of an Old Testament model. What does the New Testament say about giving? Well, what was the first century like, first century church like when it gave? Did it hold to the tithe? Well, to see what the first century church did, I would encourage you to turn to your Bibles, to the book of Acts. As we continue our journey this summer through the book of Acts, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 511. And I'll be honest with you, I never really wanted to preach this text, but if you preach through the book of Acts, you've got to tell this story. I've never liked the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but it's there, so we're going to address it today. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your servant Luke, inspired by your Holy Spirit to put pen to paper, to give an orderly account of the earliest church. Lord, we pray that as we take a glimpse and look at the earliest church and their pattern for giving, God, we pray that you might speak to our hearts and our minds, that we might be transformed. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter four, beginning at verse 32. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why was Barnabas so generous? Barnabas was a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi. And if you'll remember, the tribe of Levi was responsible for leading worship and providing for worship for the people of Israel. In fact, they lived on the tithe of the other tribes of Israel. And we can see in the Levitical code that we were only required to give 10% of our uh, offering, of our uh, uh, income to God. So why is it that Barnabas would, would take all of the proceeds and be so generous? Why not just give the 10% that the Levitical Code required? I mean, if anyone would have known he was only required to give 10%, it would have been Barnabas, right? Why was Barnabas so generous? Was there peer pressure among the earliest church? I mean, after all, we read just a moment ago, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now at this point in the, the earliest church, most of the Christians are Jewish Christians. They were raised on the Old Testament law, the Levitical Code, that said that we were required to give 10% back to God in gratitude for all that God has done for us. We were supposed to give first fruits 10%. And yet we see that the earliest church, not just Barnabas, but many of the members of the earliest church were taking their land, selling it, and giving all of it to the apostles' feet. And notice that it says twice that they laid it at the apostles' feet. They weren't giving this in a designated form, saying, well, I want you to give this money, but I want you to use it for this and this and this. They simply gave it at the apostles' feet, trusting that God would lead the apostles to use that money in the best possible ways. Why was the earliest church so generous? They went well above a tithe, yet only a tithe is required according to Old Testament law. What made them so generous? I think the answer is in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace, great grace was upon them all. 
The first century was generous because of God's grace, God's unmerited favor. They realized how generous God had been to them for God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, God sent his son. He gave us, as we read in John 3, 16, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We serve a very generous God who's been so generous to us that even though we're sinners, rebellious against God and his great love for us, he gives us his son to do what we can never do for ourselves. For Jesus lived the life that we can never live. He lived in perfect obedience to our heavenly father. Jesus died the death that we all deserved as a sinner on a cross. And then he won the battle that we can never win by conquering sin and death on the third day when he rose again. Yes, God has been so generous to us that he's, he's given us the gift of eternal life, the assurance of eternal life, and the gift of a new life if we'll simply believe in him. It's in gratitude for God's amazing grace. The first century church was, was so generous, recognizing how generous our God has been to us. As the Apostle Paul writes to the house churches in Rome, for God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has generously poured out his love upon us that while we're sinners, still rebellious people, he loves us anyway. He loves us because he loves us. And he gives us his son. And so in gratitude for all that God had given them, the first century church was, went well above a tithe. A tithe, 10%, is the beginning point of generosity. It's not necessarily the destination. We shouldn't cap our giving at 10%. Well, the first century church gave well above 10%. Now, I don't want anyone here to leave today thinking that giving is just about money. Actually, giving in the Bible is about time, talents, and treasures. We are called to be good stewards for, as you read in Psalm 24, all that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. And so the reason I'm wearing a t-shirt today is to advertise an opportunity for all of us to put our time and our talents into action. Uh, starting tomorrow, we're going to be leading a vacation Bible school. If you show up at 1030 at Sanderson Elementary, we're going to be helping lead a vacation Bible school for, for one of the neediest communities uh, in, our, in our city, uh, San Jacinto. And we're also going to be helping build habitat homes with Habitat for Humanity uh, for two needy families, partnering with the four MLO churches. A wonderful opportunity to give our time and our talents to the work of God's kingdom. Not because we have to, but in gratitude for God's grace to us, we want to give. We want to be generous. It's these in-town mission trips that we do the last week of June every year are great opportunities for us to live generously, to help point others to the generous nature of our holy God, who's given us all that we have, is all that we are. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, 8, freely you received, freely give. That's why if you'll remember in October, working with our finance committee and our session adopted a budget in October that would give 15% of our operating budget to local and global missions. We want to be as generous a church as possible so that we reflect the generous nature of our God. And we can see from the first century church that they did not limit their giving to 10%. Tithing was the starting point for generosity, not the destination for them. I saw this little comic strip that I think helps uh, uh, illustrate what I'm talking about here. There's a little comic strip I want to show you. How come the waitress gets 15%? And God only gets 10%, right? I mean, that's a pretty good question. I don't shortchange short, short the waitress. Please give her 15. But why does God only get 10, right? Can, can we not go above that? That's a pretty good question. Did you know that the average Christian in America gives only 2.5% of their income to their local church? Can you imagine what would happen if every Christian in America, every Christian in this church, gave a full 10% back to the church? 
Now, I don't know what anyone gives. That's none of my business. I don't want to know. That's between you, God, and the business office here at the church, right? They know. And so I asked Lisa, not what you give specifically, but I said, what would happen, do you think, to our budget if everyone in our church gave a full biblical tithe, 10% back to the church? What do you think would happen? And she said, well, we would easily double our budget, and I'm pretty sure we could give 50% of our operating budget to missions. Did you know that in our presbytery, which is the Presbytery of Texas and ECO, there is a Presbyterian church that gives 50% of its operating budget to missions? Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston gives 50% of its operating budget to missions. They call it their dollar-for-dollar campaign. For every $2 that come in, they give a dollar away to help do the work of God's kingdom. And God is using that church to help plant churches, to help make disciples, to help grow God's kingdom for sure. In fact, I came from a church in Dallas that gave 25% of its operating budget to missions, and it was founded doing that. Several months ago, you may remember our Morris preacher, who's from uh, Bellevue in Washington, says that the more we give, the more we grow. He challenged us that the more we give, the more we grow. And as a church, I can see that that is true. The more we give to missions, the more we grow. If you'll remember in 2010, when I first came here, I went to my first finance meeting led by Jim Thompson, Elder Jim Thompson at the time, and, and we were giving 6.5% of our operating budget to missions. Well, as a former missions pastor, that kind of stood out to me, and so I, I couldn't find 6.5% in the Bible, and so I said, hey, could we give 10? Could we just increase it to give 10? And we were coming through kind of a tough season financially, but by great faith, the finance committee led by Jim Thompson said, yeah, let's do it. And so we, we wrote in $40,000 more to local and global missions, and God has been so faithful ever since. If you'll remember, a a few years later, then we we said, what if we gave one more percent? So we went from 10% to 11%. And the next year, we went to 12%. And and this last October, you know, we adopted a budget originally that was going to give 15% of our, 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 our operating budget to local and global missions. And in this time, God has helped our church grow. Our average weekly attendance has grown close to 20% since 2010. This past winter, we had the largest new members class our church has had in recent history, and we have several more people who want to join our church. Our operating budget has grown from 1.8 million to 2.4, a little less than 2.4 million in that same time. Those extra funds have allowed us to to have a deep impact locally and globally. We've been able to build homes here in, in Amarillo. We've been able to build homes in Mexico, Colorado Springs, and Tulsa as well. Our local mission dollars have also helped bring the gospel to children at at Caprock High School, as you're going to hear about in a moment, from Orlando uh, through the ministry of Young Life that we've helped finance. We've also been able to help uh, bring young families to Christ in the San Jacinto neighborhood, which has been amazing, as we've helped uh, heal the city, and we've also helped with um, the Navigator Neighbor Program. If you remember, San Jacinto Elementary School had identified some families where if the parents just got a GED or got a vocational degree from Amarillo College, that would change their lives. But they, had, they needed help navigating through the social welfare programs of Amarillo. So we adopted some of these families, our deacons did, and we helped them navigate through the system. And some of the recipients of, those, uh, of that service have gotten their GED, they've gotten their vocational degrees, and one of them even joined our church, and we baptized one of his little girls uh, a few months ago. It's amazing how God has used our church to help impact our community. And not just locally, but, but globally as well. We've been on mission trips to Mexico, Honduras, Costa Rica, Ireland, Belize, Hungary, Bolivia, and most recently to Alaska. That's not a, another country. I know it's a state, but boy, it's pretty far away. Our giving has helped triple the number of missionaries that we sponsored. We sponsored about eight missionaries in 2010 financially. Now we sponsor over 24. The more we give, the more we grow. The more we grow as a church and the more we grow as individuals. You know, people often quote 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7 to me in talking about giving, and they say, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. And we Christians can often use this verse to explain that 
Well, I only give to specific causes as the Spirit moves me, and if I, I want to have joy in my giving, so if I feel happy about it, then I'll give to it. But I have actually found that as we give, then we experience the joy. That if I give in obedience, then my heart will follow. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that as we give, our heart follows, and we experience the joy of giving. The joy doesn't really come until we start to give in gratitude for all that God has given to us. Yet only 5% of Americans, uh, Christians, give a full tithe, full 10%. I love what R.C. Sproul, who's a New Testament scholar and a Presbyterian pastor, said about tithing. I've never met a tither who regretted tithing. I never met a tither who regretted tithing. Yet why is it that only 5% of American Christians give a full 10%? Why are the 21st century Christians in America so reticent to follow the model of the first century church who gave well above a tithe? After all, the American church is the wealthiest church in the world. So why is it we're so reticent to tithe, to give back to God? What is it that the first century seemed to understand that we do not? I believe the answer again is in verse 33. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I think the first century church had a better understanding of grace than we do, because the first century church understood how much they had been forgiven. You see, the first century church were mostly at this time in Acts 4 were Jewish Christians who had spent their whole lives trying to obey the laws and the rituals and the regulations of the Levitical code. And and they found themselves time and time again falling short of God's commandments. They found that they could not fully obey all that God commanded us to do. But then they were told the good news about Jesus, that he who was without sin came to this earth to be sin for us. As we read in 2 Corinthians, he who was rich became poor so that we might be rich in him. He gave us all. He gave his life so that our sins might be atoned for, so that we might experience the new life in him if we'll simply believe in him. Yes, the first century church understood their need for a savior. Do we fully grasp our need for a savior today? Do we fully grasp how deep our sin runs? John Calvin, one of the founding fathers of the Presbyterian denomination, in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is pretty long, says man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We have a sinful nature that is perpetually producing idols. And an idol, of course, is anything that we put above God. Whenever I love anything more than God, I have made an idol. We have a sinful nature that's prone to turn to things rather than to God. We're prone to turn towards the creation rather than the creator. Tim Keller explains it this way, pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Keller goes on to explain in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Our identity becomes tied into stuff or things or people rather than God. You know, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they didn't give everything. There was true a precedent of giving all to the apostles, but it wasn't a requirement. Peter makes it very clear that he could have kept some of the money to himself. It wasn't a requirement. No, Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was was the sin of idolatry. Let me show you how. Acts 5, verse 3, Peter tells Ananias, 
Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was the sin of deception. And they sought to deceive the community of God because ultimately their sin of idolatry. They, had an idol, they were idols to the idolatry of adulation. They wanted the praise of others. Why do you think they would lie? Except for the fact that they wanted people to think they were more generous than they really were. They were seeking the praise of man rather than the glory of God. Why do we often lie? People ask us how we're doing and we'll just say fine on the streets or in the grocery store or even in the great hall here in our church. We'll say fine, even though things aren't going well because we won't, don't want them to know how bad really things are or how much we're hurting. We're, we're not willing to share because we don't want to seem weak. We want to make people think we have it all together. We want the appraise or the adulation of others. If you look at most of our Facebook pages, we show pictures of our vacations. We show pictures of our precious moments, not our difficult ones. And when we tell stories, you know, we all do this. We kind of embellish things. We've all got the big fish story, right? I mean, my first fish when I was eight years old, I, I caught it at El Porvenir in a little pond there that a friend of mine owned. It was about this big. It was probably about that big. Actually, it was a whale. Uh, we named it Moby Dick afterwards. It was amazing. I mean, that's how the story goes, right? It continues to grow. We, we have a way of embellishing because we want the people, others, to think we're greater than we are. We don't want to show our brokenness. We want the praise of men rather than giving glory to God. Now, I, our idol, just like it was for Ananias and Sapphira, is the idol of adulation, acceptance of others, the praise of others. I believe the deception of Ananias and Sapphira was driven by their idolatry of adulation. Rather than trusting God and giving God all the glory, as Barnabas did, Ananias and Sapphira say that, said to Peter and the other apostles that this was everything that they had when it wasn't. They could have simply given and said, here's some of the cell, and that would have been fine. But when they told them it was everything and it wasn't, well, that was deception. And it was that driven by an idolatry, an idolatry of adulation. And that's ultimately what killed them. I'm afraid that Ananias and Sapphira didn't fully understand God's grace like the rest of the community did. You see, when you fully understand God's grace, God's unmerited favor, that God loves us because he loves us. And we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God loves us because he loves us. That despite our sin, God sent his son to save us. Then we don't really care what other people think. Because ultimately, our identity is found in Jesus Christ and his great love for us. And there's no greater love. There's no more love that we could possibly need than the love that comes from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we don't sink the glory of man. In gratitude, we want to bring glory to God. Ananias and Sapphira gave the apostles and told them they gave everything because they were seeking the approval of man. Their idol of adulation led them to be deceptive. And it was this sin that ultimately killed them. You know, as we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we can see that the sin that continually upsets God more than any other is the sin of idolatry. Whenever we put anything above God, that makes God upset. As we read in in Exodus, our God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to worship anything other than him. And rightfully so, because he's the only thing worthy of worship. And yet in our culture, we live in a culture that's, well, it's a consumerist culture. It's a materialist culture. And we're told that, you know, we'll be cool if we drink this drink or we drive this car or we wear these clothes. Our identity is often found in stuff. And the best way I have found personally to avoid the sin, the idolatrous sin, uh, the sin of idolatry when it comes to things and stuff and money 
is to give it away. Yesterday I was going through the closets and we were giving some clothes away and we were giving some furniture away and in my mind I kept thinking, did we need all this stuff? The more I give, the less likely I am am to want to buy more stuff. Who needs to go through your closets every now and then? I I I know that the more I give, the less I feel the need to buy more stuff. And the more I give finances to God's work, the work of God's kingdom, the more I grow. For my heart follows. Jesus knew this would be true. And so if you look at his parables, you'll see that over half of his parables involve money in some way. Jesus knew that the biggest challenge we are going to have in this life was, was the love of money. It's the root of all evil, according to, to uh, uh, Paul in, in 2 Timothy. We have to wa- warn against that and, and guard against that. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve both God and money. You have to make a decision. So if we serve God, then, then money is simply a resource, a tool to be used for the work of God's kingdom. It's not something to worship or to pursue solely. It's, we're called to pursue God. And so the first century church understood God's grace, and so they gave generously. Now, as an econo- economist, I have to tell you, be real quick here just to make a clarifying point. If everyone who was a Christian gave all of their stuff away, that would not be good. Here's why. Because all of the world's resources would be in the hands of pagans. God doesn't want that, right? But we can see from the first century church a description, not necessarily a prescription, but a description of, of, of incredible generosity. When there was a need, the people gave to meet the need. And that's what we're called to do, to help meet needs. To trust God and not allow tithing 10% to be a cap to our giving, but rather a starting point. Now, if this room is indicative and reflects the rest of our culture, we'll see that, you know, most people only give 2.5% of their uh, income to their local church. So how do you go from 2.5% to 10%? Well, you could go bold and do it in one year or... I would encourage maybe a measured approach. Maybe give 1% the next year. I talked to a a member of our church uh, a few months ago, and she was telling me that when she saw that our operating budget was going to go from 12% to 15% to local and global missions, that told her that she needed to increase her giving by 3%. And so she did. And she's making her way to 10%. How might God use his resources if we gave back to him in gratitude for all that he's done for us? 10% is not the, the destination for generosity it's the starting point is we should do all that we can so that we can give as much as we can i love this quote from john wesley the founder of the methodist church he says earn all you can save all you can give all you can john wesley said this and wrote this after having a life transforming experience where a a woman came to him an elderly woman who needed money for a coat and and well he knew that he couldn't give her any money because he'd already spent all the money on himself he'd recently bought a bunch of pictures for his, uh, for his study, and he realized, wow, I've been so generous to myself, but I'm not being generous to my fellow man. And so he learned how to live on 30 pounds a year. Living on 30 pounds a year, as he began to grow in his publishing, and his works grew financially, he had a year where he gave 97% of his income away because he learned how he needed to live on, and he just stayed there. To live generously, to give generously, We may have to make some adjustments. We may need to look at the way we spend our money and say, is that the best use of God's resources? For it's all God's stuff. Barnabas in the first century church understood the depth of God's grace because they understood the depth of their sin. They understood they had been forgiven much and so they were most grateful. After spending years trying to obey God's law and follow the Ten Commandments and all the rituals and the regulations of the Levitical Code, they found themselves time and time again falling short When we're honest about our sin, then we'll begin to understand the depth of God's amazing grace. And we, like the first century, 
will be generous in gratitude for all that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, freely you received, freely give. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the generous model of the first century church. We're able to see how they were so grateful for your amazing love, and we too are grateful. Lord, we recognize ourselves as sinners in need of your grace. We recognize that we're only on this earth for a short time. Lord, help us to make the most of the time with the time and the talents and the treasures that you've given to us. Help us to use them to do the work of your kingdom. Help us to make the most of the time, the talents, and the treasures you've given to us so that we might be a church of impact as we continue to impact the community both locally and globally. Lord, help us to maximize all the time, the talents, and the treasures you've given to us. Oh God, by your spirit, guide us so that we might live as generous people just as the first century was generous in gratitude for your generosity to us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen.